0: Good morning everyone. As we turn to hear from God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us do just that. Let's read it together. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only few find it. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 976. Again, the text is Romans 12, verses 14 through 17, found on page 976 of the Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone.
1: All right, let's begin with prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, how beautiful it is that we can gather freely to to consider your word, not merely to consider it, but to revel in it, to surrender our souls in it, uh, to bathe our spirits that we might be renewed, that we might be reinvigorated, that we might reprioritize our agendas, that most of all that we might recognize Jesus and rejoice in his lordship and hail Him as our Savior, and to walk in His ways, ways that are so beautiful, ways that lead to life, that lead to joy, that lead to wholeness, that lead to redemption, that lead to nobility. Oh, Father, I pray this morning that by the power of Your your Spirit, all the words in my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' mighty and merciful name. Amen. Before we jump into the sermon here, and I'll try to keep my thoughts on the brief side this morning, um, I just want to make a comment here. How many of you, if you had an adult kid and he called, called you up, or maybe came home, stopped by or something, and said that he got fired from his job because he kept showing up late, what would you say? I don't know. I don't know what the boss's deal is. I kept showing him late, and he just eventually fired me. I don't know. What's the problem? What would you say to him? Or if your child were given the opportunity to meet an an important person, maybe the governor of the state of Missouri, or even the president, and they showed up late, what would you say? Well, I missed the governor because I showed up late. The governor was waiting for me in his office. I showed up late. What would you say to them? What do we say when week after week after week we show up late to the service? We show up late to meet our God. When he calls us to worship and we show up late. I had a, a guy that I, I used to, in a previous church of mine, he would come to me and he, he, loved, um, he loved a certain, uh, certain tradition of Christianity. He would talk to me about the order of worship. In the different parts of worship. And he would debate about what, how the order of the parts of worship should be, and this and that, and all these different things, and how the worship should fit together according to you know, his theological ideas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And finally I said, John, I will talk to you about this, but only on one condition. And so he said, well, what's that? That you start showing up on time to church. And that, that, that's it. That's the last time we had a conversation. Because all these intricacies of whatever, he just can't even show up on time. Those of you kids or your parents, when your dad or mom is late to work, how do they act? Oh my goodness, I'm late to work, I gotta go, I gotta get out my way, I gotta go, I gotta go. But they're late to church, how do they act? Ah, oh, it's just not a big deal. It's just God. Okay, so I, and I understand as parents, sometimes Hey, things happen, they just happen. You know, kids, the kid's sick, throws up. What, I mean, just, you know, the dog. I mean, it's just things happen. I understand. You miss, you're late ever so often. Hey, it's just, no, Jesus doesn't sit there, sitting there with a clipboard. But when it's consistent, like I just can't make it on time because I'm just so busy. I'm just so important. I'm such a big deal. And frankly, church isn't important to me. Meeting with Jesus is not a big deal. So I'm asking you, what does it communicate to our Heavenly Father when we're late? What does it communicate to others when we show up and I'm just here to, for me to get, my, you know, get, get my, my, my hour and a half in or whatever. Or we show up early, ready to welcome others, to encourage others, ready to prepare our hearts to worship him. So again, think about that. It's not some, again, it's not some hard and fast rule. It's saying, how am I going to prioritize and honor the Lord in my Sunday worship? How am I going to prepare my heart, prepare my family to show up ready to serve and worship the Lord? Um, So with that, let's transition to our, 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 so we've been been walking through, um, I'm going to grab a scripture here. We've been walking through Romans 12 together, and this, this morning's sermon is going to really be a part two to last To last Sunday, what what Lydia read for us this morning, we're going to back up here because we didn't quite cover some of the verses from last time. So I want to walk through uh, these beautiful exhortations, and they are incredibly beautiful. So we're in again, we're in Romans chapter 12, and I want to begin. Actually, uh, we we talked last week. We talked about uh, verse nine, where Paul writes, "Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil." cling to what is good and we talked about that we talked about how the renewing of our minds and we're looking back to verses one and two of chapter 12 where paul says that the welcome that we have received leads to a worship of god a worship that seeks to have its mind renewed to discern god's will so it's a welcome that leads to a wholehearted worship that seeks a wisdom that sees the beauty of his will Okay, And that that seeking of a wisdom is what Paul in verse 2 calls the renewing of our mind. Without that renewing of our mind, without that radical recalibration of how we think about life, God's will will never appeal to us. It will never be beautiful. It will never be um, wise. It will never be shrewd. We will look at the various institutions of marriage, how God calls us to marriage, We'll look at the various uh, ways he calls us to spend our money, how he calls us to use our body, how he calls us to use our words, and they will make absolutely no sense to us. In fact, not only will they be nonsensical, irrational, they will actually seem even inhumane. And that's how the world often sees, uh, sees God's law. They see it in that way. And Paul calls us in verse 2, saying, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, and only then, will you be able to test and approve what God's will is. And so that's what we're doing. Paul's laying out for us the, the specifics, the details, the beautiful details of God's i want to jump into it. So the idea here, looking, concentrating on verses 9 and following, is that when our minds are renewed, these are the sorts of things that will happen, if you will. That is to say, when our minds are renewed, what will happen? It will, our, we, uh, our mind, or, or this process renewal, it will redeem, first and foremost, our affections. We talked about that last time. That love must be sincere. How many of us, we know this, we live in a world, right, where people talk about love. They say nice things. They're cordial. We know how to be polite. We're so experts at being superficial. Like I can remember having a conversation with when I was living in the UK for four years. And I had this, this sort of moment of like a third or fourth year where I was able to sit down with a, a Brit and just have this candid conversation. He said, You know, some of you Brits, I mean, you guys are so cold. You say hi, you, you're sort of, you know, hey, you know, how are you, whatever. And he goes, Oh, yeah, well, you Americans are so fake. And, and I was like, you know what? You're right. You got me. <laughs> right? We're superficial. We're like, "Hey, how are you?" And we don't really care. I mean, I understand. It's a formality. There's nothing wrong with asking how are you. It's, it's it's a way of conversing at the at the store or whatever. "Hey, how you doing?" Whatever. But the actual idea he's saying, you know, you guys think that we're cold, but we're just being real. You guys are just sort of, you know, you guys, Americans, are just kind of being, you know, kind of going through the motions, pretending like, hey, guy, what's up, hey? You know, and it's this, this friendliness that really is quite shallow. And Paul here calls us, when we, re- we renew our minds, he calls us, he says, love must be sincere. So when our minds are renewed, first it redeems our affection Second, as we talked about last time, it redeems our feelings. Verse 9, the second half of verse 9, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good. That This renewing of our mind calls us, listen, to redeem our feelings, how we feel about what is evil and what is good. And gang, as I mentioned last time, this is one of the key issues of our times. Can I trust my moral feelings, if I feel insulted, does that mean I've actually been insulted? If I feel that this is right, or if I feel that this is evil, if I feel that this is good, can I trust that? And Paul actually calls us to say, actually, you know, we must actually study what God says is evil, what God says is good, and learn to learn, we have to learn to hate the one, and learn to cling to and love the latter. So again, The idea here, by way of review, when our minds are renewed, it redeems first our affections, a sincere love; second, our feelings. And this is where we want to move on today. Okay, that when our minds are renewed, it redeems not only our affections and our feelings, but look at verse ten, how we think about family, how we think about friendship. Okay, look at verse ten. Verse ten says, "Be devoted to one another." In brotherly love. Isn't that beautiful? Paul was, listen, understand Paul's own story. That Paul was about, before Christ, Paul was about one thing. He was about his tribe, he was about his clan. If you weren't a Jew, you were a nobody. If you weren't part of the people of God, if you weren't circumcised, if you weren't in the inner circle, you were unclean, you were lost. You were depraved. You were outside. Paul was all about his ethnic people group. And he talks about the Galatians elsewhere. He talks about how he was all about simply the sense of how the Jews, the, the people, the, the, the Israelites were better. They had the law. They had the promises. They were. They were. They were. They, they were the ones who had it together. And Paul here says something very radical. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That is to say, he calls them to a family, to a way of thinking about family that is not first and foremost tied to the blood of kin, but rather to the blood of Christ. Now in Paul's day, especially among Jewish circles, this is just unbelievably subversive. And it's actually fairly subversive here in St. Louis. Because in St. Louis here, if you haven't noticed, there's a, I mean, man, that's amazing how I'll talk to people and their families will go back generations here in St. Louis. You ask them what they're doing this weekend, they're spending time with family. You ask them what they're doing for the holidays, they're with family. And there's nothing per se wrong with that. As you guys going to see here, Jesus is an anti, Paul is an anti-family but what he does say is that real family, the truest family, if we are followers of Christ, our truest family are the fellow, fellow followers of Jesus. Again, our family is no longer the blood of kin, but the blood of Christ. And Jesus himself teaches this in Mark 3, as we're about to go through that in our men's discipleship group. We'll see this way in which Jesus' mother and brothers, they, they call to him, they want to talk to him, and Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of my heavenly Father. Now think about that for a second. If you seek to devote your life, if you surrender your life to Christ, who is your brother? It's an incredible thing. Jesus himself is your brother. He has that family loyalty, that devotion, that I will go to the very end with you. We're family. We're in this together. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. It's this radical subversion of this notion of family. And this is important, okay? So here's what I say here. Paul is is here not being anti-family. He's actually very pro-family. Again, I might not get to the rest of the sermon to talk about this because it's so important. How is Paul pro-family, biological family? Listen to this. Only when God's family is your family first can you truly love your biological family. See, it's only when you you have a fellowship of people who share your values, who share the same desires, the same longings, the same future, the same authority. right? What's our authority? The the Word of God. It's only when there's that common bond and an understanding of our sin, that we are 10,000 talent sinners, an understanding of forgiveness and of mercy, that these things root us, they ground us. And when we have that fellowship of people who are faithful to us and committed to us, we had that small group of believers that were rooted and have identity and meaning and value that we can then, then go back to our biological family and what? Love in ways that need to lo- we need to love them. How many times do I talk to people like, well, have you talked to your mom about this? I can't talk to her about that. There's so many unaddressed issues, so many landmines, so much dysfunction. Well, I, I can't do that. There's too much at stake. I can't say that there's too much at stake. No, 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 no. We're, we're going to avoid that. And there's all these ways that we can't actually love our biological family members. Why? Because there's too much at stake. Our identity, our security, it's all wrapped up in our biological family. But if our family, if our, if our true family, our true fellowship, our true inner circle is the people of God, we're secure in our identity. We have a, a financial and, and, a, and a, uh, a material security. I know there's somewhere to happen. I can call up so-and-so in my church, and they would gladly welcome me in. They would gladly help me. I know the deacons in my church. They will take care of me if I were in financial crisis. And so we have that rounding, that rooting, so that then we can then go and love our family in ways that are actually quite risky, that are loving. But often that, that, that could actually, you know, make us unpopular. So Paul here says, "When our minds are renewed, see how see how wise that is. See how oh wow, well, why would I why would I love a bunch of people at a church for? Well, the answer is because when you do that, you can actually learn to love your own family better. You're freed to love your own family. So when our minds are renewed, we go, yeah." I want, my, I, want my, I, want my, I want to redeem my affections. I want my love to be sincere. I want to redeem my feelings to really hate what is really evil and to cling to what is really good. And I want, to, I want, to, I want that, that sense of family to be renewed. So again, first it's affections, feelings, family. Then Paul goes on here. Let me just ask you, have you ever had someone, uh, a brother in the Lord, have your back? A sister in the Lord, someone really devoted to you? They were committed to you. Let me ask you, have, whose back do you have? Is there someone here in this church? If I were to ask them, who's got your back here? Good shepherd. They'd say, oh, yeah, it's, it's Joe. It's Sally. I know that they are devoted to me. And if you can't, if you don't have anyone like why, why why won't you start? Come to someone and say, I want you to know I am behind you 100%. How can I back you? How can I encourage you? I am here. I am devoted to you in brotherly love. Those of you who are in small groups, do you attend small groups ever so often? You know, when it's convenient, right? When there's no other events going on, or do you actually say, look, I'm here. I'm devoted to this, this group, this motley crew here. We're in this together. Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So again, when we have our minds renewed, it redeems our affections, our feelings, our family, Fourth, it redeems. Ready for this? Our fanfare, our fanfare, like like the, the, the affirmation, how we think about affirmation. Look at verse ten. I'm sorry, verse. Um, I'm sorry, ver- Yeah, the second half of verse ten. He says, "Be devoted to one another in love." Then he says, "Honor one another above yourselves." Now, in the Greco-Roman culture, understand, life was about honor. It was an honor-shame culture, and what it was understood, it was a given that your priority in life was to, to accumulate as much honor as possible. If Twitter or Facebook or social media of any kind had existed in the Roman Empire, people would have been all over it, constantly promoting themselves as a way of getting honor. Not in some sort of fleeting way, but in a sense of, hey, let me show you what an honorable person I really am. It was the pursuit of honor. And Paul here in in, in verse 10 says something incredibly subversive. He says, don't look out for your own honor. What does he say? Honor one another above yourselves. Be about the business of making sure that your fanfare isn't about you. It's about others. When's the last time you were able to say in your small group, or say in your, 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 as you're talking here in fellowship, to say, hey, did you know about so-and-so over here, Sally over here? She, she is she's amazing in this way. Or did you know about Joe, that Joe did this for the church? It's incredible. Or did you know that, whatever it may be, that we are promoting the honor the dignity of others, that we're affirming them. See, Paul, before Christ, had been all about self-promotion. Again, you can go read this in Galatians 1. It's amazing. He talks about how he was getting ahead of all of his fellow Jews in his day, all about being the big deal, making a big splash, being the guy who's sort of the center of attention. He was all about self-promotion. But now his letters, I love this. You read Paul's letters, and they overflow with affirmation. You are my joy, my crown. You're, you're, he just celebrates God's people whenever he can. That is a little tiny letter, at the very last letter uh, in Paul's writings, called Philemon. And Philemon is this beautiful book about um, how Paul's in prison, and there's this there's this, there's this uh, guy named Onesimus who's a slave, and this Onesimus has fled uh, illegally, it's, uh, unlawfully, has fled from his master. In the, in the Greco-Roman world of his day, that, that, that's actually a, a, um, a capital offense. That he would be, a slave that runs away would be put to death. And Paul runs across Onesimus. And he learns that Onesimus's master is a Christian. <laughs> he writes him this letter. And it, is, it is great. Although you read it, it's, literally it's 20 verses at most. But it's amazing how Paul, on the one hand, challenges and says, look. This guy, this slave has come to Christ. And what are you going to do about this? Oh, and by the way, Onesimus, uh, um, I'm sorry, Philemon, Master, you, uh, how did you come to Christ? Oh, that's right. It was through me. Huh. You, you owe me your life. So what about this guy? Where you, you know, so he's a, he's a beautiful, but he affirms Onesimus in these beautiful ways. You know, and, in, and in times he affirms uh, Philemon as well. So this beautiful sense of affirmation. Paul is saying here, honor one another above yourselves. Make other people more important than you are. Make them a big deal. Let me ask you, who has been, your, who has been a cheerleader for you? Think about people in your life who have just been, a, they're, they're your advocate They're the wind in your sails. Let me ask you, whose cheerleader are you? Can you look around the room and say, you know, who needs to be affirmed? Who's never in the limelight? Who's just quietly doing their, who's discouraged? Who's just struggling to believe that they have any value or worth at all? And Can you say, you know, I'm going to be from now on so-and-so's personal PR department. From now on, I am going to be championing them, not flattering this isn't making stuff up. This isn't whatever. This isn't just, just, you know, whatever, blowing smoke. This is actually saying, what is it about this person that's so beautiful? How has God made them? How, what's the, 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 the gifts that God's given them? What are the struggles that they have? And how are they being faithful that I can champion them? That I can advocate for them. How can I honor others above myself? So when our minds are renewed, it redeems our affections, it redeems our feelings, it redeems, oops, excuse me, our family how we think about family. And then, and then next here redeems our, our, what we would call our, our fortitude, our fervor, our fortitude. Look in verses 11 and 12. Paul says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Before Paul came to faith in Christ, he was zealous for pedigree. He was all about his tribe, I mentioned that already, but now he's zealous for Christ. You can read in Philippians 3 how zeal, he's zealous for who Jesus is and what he has done, what, what, what he has done for Paul. Now listen, this is important. This doesn't mean, we, we hear these, read these verses, it says, never be lacking zeal, keep your spiritual fervor, and, and we can think of this, sort of this notion of someone who's been drinking coffee a lot, and they're really loud, and they're talking about Jesus all the time, and they're just sort of inspirational and passionate. But that's actually not the case. Paul talks about to be zealous to be fervent, to have that fortitude, joyful in hope, patient in affection, faithful in prayer, can be actually a very quiet activity. For example, think of the lady named Rosa Parks. You guys know who Rosa Parks was? Montgomery, Alabama, December 1st, 1955. It's early evening, a public bus pulls to a stop, and and a sensibly dressed woman in her 40s gets on. She carries herself... You know, uh, proudly, despite having spent the entire day, I think she was, um, she would, uh, she was in, I um, should, you know, be ironing most of her. That's what she did in a basement. She had a tailor shop there in, in Montgomery. And uh, her feet would be swollen, her shoulders are aching. She gets on the bus and she sits in the first row of the colored section and watches quietly as the bus fills with riders until the driver orders her to give her seat up to whom? A white passenger. The woman utters a single word that ignites one of the most important civil rights protests of the 20th century. One word that helps America find its way racially. The word is no. (laughs) The driver threatens to have her arrested. You may do that, says Rosa Parks. A police officer arrives, asks Parks why she won't move. Why do you all push us around? She answers simply, I don't know," he says. "But the law is the law, and you're under arrest." And on that afternoon of her trial and conviction for disorderly conduct, <laughs> the Montgomery Improvement Association holds a rally for Parks at the Holt Street Baptist Church in the poorest section of town. Five thousand people gather to support Parks' lonely act of courage. And this is so so interesting, is that when you think of Rosa Parks, movie? she's an animated, loud, passionate woman. No, she was quiet. In like fact, people would often describe her as timid and shy. But she had the one person said she had the courage of a lion. I don't know about you. Is it, are you loud and just talkative and just woo all the time? Is that that's not what Paul's talking to him. That's not what fervency is. That's not what fortitude is. In fact, when people describe her as a parks, they would describe words like radical humility and quiet. Fortitude, isn't that beautiful? In fact, her autobiography was called "Quiet Strength." What does Paul say? Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. I love that. Isn't that just beautiful? Joyful in hope. We think back to, our, uh, to Romans chapter four, where Abraham, right, against all hope, Abraham in hope believes. Paul, I mean, Abraham looks at his body and thinks. There is no life coming from this. My, my Sarah's womb is dead. You're talking about a hopeless situation. And yet he looks at God and says, You know what? God's greater. God's bigger. God is the God who raises the dead. He knows what he's doing. He will keep his promise. I will be joyful in hope. Paul says, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. God is up to something. We don't know what it is, but he's up to something. So we're going to wait and see. We're going to be patient in affliction. And finally, faithful in prayer. I love that. Pray- listen to this, gang. Prayer is the power of talking to the one who is in power. When we can pray, we have direct access to the one who, who, who oversees all things. And he hears and he listens when we have surrendered ourselves, when we have bowed our knee to him. And listen, gang, these plural, these commands, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. These commands are plural, likely suggesting that this fortitude, this fervor, is to be a group effort. You don't just be, persevere alone. You persevere together. Okay, so when our minds are renewed, it redeems our affections, our feelings, our family, our fanfare, our fervor and fortitude. And then finally, it redeems our funds and our food. This is so beautiful. Look at verse 13. Share with with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. gang these aren't suggestions they're commands when is the last time you opened your heart and your home see when we when our minds are renewed we begin to think about our funds and our food differently you know my money guess what it's not my own it belongs to Jesus where did I get the intelligence the fortitude the strength the education where did I get all that from to make this money who gave it to me It's a gift. Freely I have received. Freely I will give. There's nothing more exciting and fun than giving money away. That may sound ludicrous to you, but when you see someone who's in need and you got the money, it's so cool. It's so great to be able to help people and say, here you go, this is for this. Or I'm going to buy this for you. I'm going to help you with this in some way, sharing with the Lord's people who are in need and then practicing hospitality. There is sing- Listen, There is simply no more effective, shrewd weapon in the kingdom of God than hospitality. I can tell you that because Sarah and I have been doing it for 20 years. As we invite people into our home, people from all walks of life, be often people with whom we have nothing in common, or very little in common. And we get to know them, not once, not twice, but regularly we have them in our home. I can't tell you how disarming it is. I can't tell you what caricatures begin to just fall away. And we see each other, and we see the commonalities that we have in life. And people can see what a mess our marriage is, what a mess our kids are. You just see how, how the li- our lives are being, are being led. And it's amazing. I could I give you story after story after story after story. Of hospitality, both that Sarah and I have received, and that we have given, and how God has used it in such just, just unexpected and beautiful ways. We have been so deeply enriched by the hospitality we have done. We have people years later come back and just blow, just blow our minds with their generosity toward us by saying, hey, do you remember when I was a nobody and you welcomed me in? Do you remember that? I was a single person. I just, I had nothing. And you just, we, every, every Tuesday night, I come to your house for dinner. I want, I want you to know how much that meant to me. It, it, it helped me get from A to B in a, in a, a time of my life I didn't know how to go forward. And we open our homes very quietly. No agenda, no, no, no bait and switch. We're just here to open our homes and our hearts. It is an amazingly Powerful thing. Let me ask you, who has befriended you in that way? Who has taken an interest in you? Who has welcomed you into their home? And what did it mean to you? And whom can you befriend? Whom can you take an interest in? Whom can we, whom can you regularly invite into your home and into your heart? To whom can we say, right, Mikasa casa right? Now, just, I know I'm a little long in time here, but just real quickly, in verses 14 through 17, Paul pivots. He pivots from talking about how we to renew our minds as we think about insiders to how we renew our minds to think about outsiders. And what's, what's amazing here in verses 14 through 17, the verses that Lydia read for us, what's amazing to see here is that there is completely a, a total absence of any call to evangelize. In fact, you can read all of Paul's 13 letters and never once does he call his people, God's people, to evangelize. Isn't that amazing? He says, you better be out sharing the gospel. Never says that. He calls them to what? The two greatest commandments that we hear every Sunday morning, to love your neighbor. And he calls us to do the things that he's saying here. And it's highly instructive. So when our minds are renewed, it redeems our affections, it redeems our feelings, our family, our fanfare, our fortitude, and our fervor, how we think about those things. And and I mentioned our funds and food. The next, when when our minds are renewed, it redeems our fights. Listen to this, how we fight with people. That we begin to, listen to this, we begin to fight for our foes and not against them. Look in verses 14 or 15. This is just mind-boggling. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's just, it's just it's unbelievable. Paul speaks, and this is one thing he's giving this word from the, the ethic of Jesus. Verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn kids. What's our first response to those who say something mean to us or, or something mean about us? What's our first response? just to say something mean back, right? That reciprocity, that sense of tit for tat, quid pro quo. And kids, what's our natural response when someone else is doing really well? They're doing better than us in school. They're doing better than us in sports. Isn't it to be jealous? Oh, man. Or when we see someone do really poorly, they fail in some way. They do really badly on a test. They do really badly and they lose the game or something like that. Isn't there this temptation to what? Like, yes, they failed and Paul says to do the opposite: rejoice with those who rejoice. And again, he's speaking here of primarily of people outside the church who are opposition. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. So, who out there who you don't like or they don't like you, and they're doing well? Jesus is called. Paul is calling us to rejoice with them, and when they are hurting, to mourn with them. Not crazy. What would it be like if someone who doesn't like you is going through hardship? And you come alongside them and you're truly heartbroken. You truly want the best. You are fighting for them. I'm here to be on your team. I'm on your side. When we renew our minds, it 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 redeems how we think about our fighting. Think about it this way. Paul himself, prior to his conversion, he was an enemy. He hated God's people. He persecuted them, put them to death. Now he realizes that Christ has died for him. That Christ fought for him. We listen to this, gang. This is just, man, I know I'm long here, but it's so important. We must believe as a church that God is deeply, deeply interested in seeing our foes come to faith. He's interested in raising up Apostle Paul's. He's interested in the, the, the least likely people, all the wrong people. He wants them to come to faith. And I can give you stories. Boy, so many of my pastor friends, when they were young, were just—they were just hoodlums. They were—they were vandals. They were just—you know—you think as, as far from the grace of God as possible. And it's precisely the people like that who actually underst- come to understand God's grace, who see their sin, and have absolutely no problem with it. Let me close with this. There's a few more here, but—but but just for the sake of time, let me close with this story. Um. Paul Tripp is a, is a former pastor and, and speaker, and he shares a wonderful story about how early on in his ministry they were, they were tenants uh, in a duplex, and the landlord lived uh, on, on the other, you know, in, in the, other, the other place. And this, she was a very difficult older woman. And one day, uh, his wife had just gone to the store and bought groceries for two or three weeks, you know, as a way of saving money. And she came home and she put all, stuffed all the stuff into the refrigerator. Well, the refrigerator was actually not their refrigerator. It was The refrigerator belonged to the landlord. And something happened that irritated the landlord. And she came over and insisted immediately that she get her refrigerator back. I want the refrigerator back right now. And here they just put all these groceries into the fridge. And it was like August. And Paul just said, it just, he just exploded. He's like, are you kidding me? Who asks for the refrigerator right now? <laughs> I mean, who does that? I mean, just as a way of whatever. And his wife begins to open the door. And you can understand that from a man's perspective, right? You're trying to provide for your family. And this woman comes along and just, you know, your, your heart, you know groceries, you don't have much. And suddenly, you're, what's going to happen to So It's, it's going to spoil. And his wife's sitting there, just kind of tearing up, taking all the stuff out of the fridge. And he's just ready to explode. And he's sitting there pacing the floor, thinking about, you know, what, what, what he's going to go over there and what he's going to say to her, right? I'm going to show her. And his wife had also been, uh, been baking that day, and she pulled out of the oven some sort of cookies or some sort of beautiful homemade fresh baked goods. And she said, Paul, why don't we take these over to our landlord? Why don't we show her kindness? i don't we show her love? Why don't we break these over and say, hey, would you like some? We just made these. Would you like some? And, and <laughs> Paul says the furthest thing from his mind. Right? I mean, God's agenda is just so radically different. And they, she did. She said, why don't you, you, you go over with the kids? He said, I'm not there yet. And they, she, and they did. They went over there. And just the landlord just, just, she answered the door like she couldn't, she had no categories. Well, what are you doing here? Why are you doing this? Or is there an ulterior motive? She was trying to figure out why in the world would you be so kind? Why would you fight for me when I am fighting against you? All right, let's pray together.